Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now through Cyber Monday, Christianity Today is half price. You can enjoy meaningful Christian conversations along with deep dives into relevant topics when you get an online or print subscription to Christianity Today. You also get seasonal devotionals, including this year's Advent devotional. Visit orderct.com slash halfoff to start a subscription and help support programs like the Bulletin for just a few dollars a month. Visit the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash halfoff. If we had 70% of the men in the church were struggling with diabetes, we'd be running clinics, we'd be sharing Mm -hmm. drugs and prescription. We'd do everything we could every single day, every single Sunday to try to help them. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Clarissa Mall, producer of The Bulletin, and today on our show, we're talking about pornography, the pervasiveness of addiction, and the freedom users can find when they step into the light. We're also talking about bad behavior in Washington, the slander and fistfights in Congress, and the new Supreme Court Code of Ethics. Last, we'll talk about the latest in the pro-life movement, post-Dobbs, and how Christians can make real, long-lasting change. Joining us today to talk about these topics are Sam Black, Rick Cardos, Harvest Prude, and Kelly Rosati. Enjoy the show. Welcome to The Bulletin. This is Russell Moore, and I have to say, where, oh, where are you tonight? Why did you leave me here all alone? Mike Cosper is in Israel somewhere on a special project. And Nicole Martin is preaching right now and said, I don't think I'll be finished in time. So it's just me, but with some amazing guests to talk about some really important stuff this week. I'm not one of those people to bash the press And I hear a lot of people who do that often, but sometimes I can know on the basis of a story that I do know something about, if something is just especially ignorant, I know, okay, this person just doesn't know the world that he or she is writing about or speaking about. And I felt that way this past week with some of the reporting that came out about Speaker uh, Mike Johnson. Of course, a lot of people are wanting to find out about him and wanting to talk about uh, him because he was not very well known nationally before he became Speaker of the House. But one of those things was about the fact that he has covenant eyes on his computer along with his son, and his son is his accountability partner. So like, come on, people. I have, as you all know, plenty of differences with Speaker Mike Johnson. Johnson on election denial, coup doing, all that sort of stuff, but not this. This, as a matter of fact, should be something that we hear even more about in American life because what we're going to be talking about today is the issue of porn, an issue that I don't know a single congregation 
that is not grappling with this issue. We have with us today two people who have been working helping churches and families and people to deal with it in the right way. Sam Black is the Director of Recovery Education at Covenant Eyes, the program that we were talking about a few minutes ago. He's written two books, The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It, and The Porn Circuit, Understand Your Brain and Break Porn Habits. And also Rick Cardos, who is the founder and executive director of the Nathan Project, which does leadership training and recovery for men who struggle with compulsive use of uh, pornography and also with sexual addiction, as well as with spouses and ex-spouses of these men and families that are trapped in this cycle of addiction. Sam and Rick, thanks for being on the bulletin today. Russell, thank you for having us. Pleasure, Russell. Thanks. As two people who've been working in this area for a long time, I wonder if you have noticed a shift culturally in the way that I have, just in terms of how people think about porn. There was a time for a long time where porn use was widespread, but it was seen as a little bit pathetic and gross uh, and so forth. But there came a point where I've noticed, at least on mainstream sitcoms, for instance, there's just the assumption that everybody's using porn. And it's not so much about somebody's using porn as, well, what porn are they using? I wonder if you've noticed that sort of cultural shift and, and where that comes from. Absolutely. There's been a shift and it's been documented. The studies that we can look at are showing a dramatic change in how Americans view pornography, not only across political parties, across whether you are a person of faith or not a person of faith. So there has been a significant increase we've seen in people who say that pornography is morally acceptable, and that's happened over time. Yeah, Russell, we always have to take into account the fact that in the, say, mid-2000s, when YouTube and YouTube-like sites allowed us to, or allowed the pornographer to monetize porn, make it look like it was free because they were ripping 18-second to two-minute video clips off of production porn and putting it out there, and you could access it whenever you wanted and then the internet got faster and faster, became more available. So the shift also went from, gosh, something you might have to buy or find or look for to in your pocket 24-7 with the advent of the smartphone in 2011 and into the last, say, five or six years, where I think 95%, does that sound right, Sam, of every teenager has a smartphone in their pocket today as do most all adults. That's an interesting point that you bring up. There are very few people right now, I think, just based upon the people I talk to, who are paying for porn. And yet, Pornhub, massive internet uh, presence, one of the biggest and most widely reaching companies in the world. What is the business model for giving things away for free? I think, Russell, if you looked at the dollars and cents sides of it, how much money the advertiser for those tube sites in particular is making when Pornhub claims they've got 1.6 trillion. I mean, the number is so big 
that it has, it's like the national debt. I don't quite have a hard time Mm -hmm. grasping the size of that number, but the amount of clicks and the amount of dollars that advertisers are paying this pornographer, that makes it very attractive to them to, in quotes, put it out for free, but it's never free. Somebody is always damaged when you're looking at porn. And that person most often is a woman. We talk about nobody pays, somebody always pays a price. When somebody is using porn, a woman is being consumed almost always. When you look around at the question of what do we do about this, a couple of things have been proposed. And a lot of state legislatures are now doing age verification for at least attempts for people accessing porn sites. Do those sorts of laws, do they work? And how can somebody actually verify age when the old New Yorker cartoon that has become a cliche on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. On the internet, nobody knows who you are. Can they actually verify age? Are these things that are helpful or not helpful? It will make a difference. The issue, though, is that how much of a difference? In other words, In New Hampshire, obviously, I don't know if we'll ever have age verification laws because our free staters and our our libertarians are certainly going to say, no, we don't want another way that you can track me or know me or identify who I am. But also when you made the comment that on the Internet, you don't know if I'm a dog. Today, I would say they know so much more about you already. In Mm -hmm. other words, when we all talk about the algorithms that are tracking and looking at everything we say and do and then sending us advertisements and and sending us invitations to do this or that or see this or see that, social media particularly, They're bragging about how much they know about you. And to think that today you go online and look at pornography and people don't know that somehow there's a secret, that you're not visible to whomever and however numbers of organizations is, I don't mean to say ridiculous. Yeah, I do. It's ridiculous. Everybody knows that you're looking at porn if you're looking at it online And yet you think it's a secret. And that's one of the big lies that we want to combat over and above age verification. One of the things that I I hear a lot of, especially men, say is that shame just doesn't work in terms of freeing themselves from porn, whether it's self-shaming or whether it's uh, sort of listening to people saying you shouldn't be doing this. Because in most cases, I rarely hear from, at least from Christian men, who will say, oh, I think this is fine. In almost every case, they will say, I think this is awful. I don't know why I keep doing it. I don't know how to stop. And I find myself in this kind of shame cycle and I keep returning. How do y'all counsel somebody or counsel churches as they're ministering to somebody like that to, to break free? Shame is the antithesis of finding freedom from pornography. It is destructive. And I often tell parents, if You want to see your child struggle more with pornography if you shame them when you find them uh, using pornography or see pornography on a device. You will only teach them how to hide better. What we want to do is create open environments where we can have honest and open conversations about sexuality. And as 
people who have struggled with pornography, having someone else to really dive more deeply into our stories, not just simply, hey, I watch pornography and this is what I watch and this is how I acted, etc. But really, Rick would be one to ask me, Sam, what was happening before then? How did you feel? What were you thinking? What was going on in your life? And my emotional impact is likely why I was running to pornography in the first place, to whether it's regulating my emotions or moods or anesthetize those uh, triggers and fears and anxieties that I might have been carrying since childhood, where I can begin talking openly and honestly about how I'm using different things in my life because I'm not currently living in wholeness. I'm living in this brokenness and I need someone to, I can really process that with. What you described was somebody, if we hadn't been talking about pornography, let's say you were talking about somebody in church who was using cocaine. Mm -hmm. What you described was somebody who's an addict. And gosh sakes, in the church, we do not like that word. We don't want to call. We could talk about human trafficking and what that means and the relationship, the convergence of trafficking and porn. But basically, the man saying to you, I'm struggling with an addiction, and the church most often, the answer is pray more, seek help, maybe get a counselor. But in the church, we're just, we're simply not equipped to help the addict who is using porn. And if the numbers are correct, and unfortunately, I'm almost certain they are because there's just, there's too many surveys, too many Barnas and this one and that one and Pew Research that say between 65 and 70% of the men are using pornography in the church. That's, I only work in the church. I think the number is even higher on the outside. But as we get younger, as we hit that that Gen Z and that 11 to 26 and the, the millennials, the numbers I think go up. And in the Gen Zs, it may be as high as 90% are using porn or looking at porn. And when I say using, intentionally searching out pornography with the intent of feeling lustful, of moving towards many times solo sex, towards masturbation, and to the place where they can't stop and they're addicts. So we have a church full of people who are struggling with an addiction and we are woefully unprepared to help them. Somebody told me one time if we had 70% of the men in the church were struggling with diabetes, we'd be running clinics, we'd be sharing mm-hmm. drugs and prescription. We'd do everything we could every single day, every single Sunday to try to help them. And yet something that can separate us from our Lord can physical, emotional, and uh, spiritual death per se And we're not getting after it in the church. We mentioned the parent who finds maybe an adolescent son or daughter accessing porn and doesn't want to overreact and and create that sort of shame cycle that we talked about, but also doesn't want to underreact and just act as though this is just a part of life. How would you counsel that person to, to thread that needle? I direct them to what I think are some well-researched and well-written resources, and there is a plethora of them, one of which is Covenant Eyes. There are resources on there 
that are age appropriate, what to say, how to say it, how to respond. There's a gentleman out, John Ford, a gentleman from another ministry, Be Broken, who's got a book that is excellent that talks about how to have that talk. Pure Hope, another organization just published, gosh sakes, it's 20 years in the making, a guide to parents how to talk to their children about it. The big issue, I think, is not just what I say to parents, it's what I say to pastors, is that you've got to help teach those parents that their kids need to choose to not use. Choose to not use. It's inevitable. A hundred percent of those kids between today, between, say, six and 14, in their lifetime, they're going to see porn. They are not going to be able to avoid it. And they're going to have to make a decision to say, no, I don't want to see it. But that means we have to talk about it. It has to come from the front of the room. And it has to be an open dialogue on a regular basis, not the sex talk at church once a year. Yeah. So one of the things I would highly recommend is a parent take a pause. Uh, That if a child, if you've found your child or teen watching pornography, there's no reason to say, hey, we're going to pause for a minute. Let's put this device away. And I want you to know that I love you. And we're going to talk about this later, but not right now, because your emotions are high. And I want you to be able to us to have a good conversation about this. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. This has been planned out for you. And one of the things I really want to encourage parents to do is to begin having an ongoing conversation and start young. But I think often parents don't take any action at all because they believe five myths. And the first myth is my kid is a good kid and they would never be curious like I was curious, right? And number two, if my child saw it, they would just look away. And we miss out on the whole neurology about how impactful it is on that child's brain, that it's very hard for a child to look away. Number three, the measures I have in place are good enough. And that's typically be, we say, I look over my child's children now and again, and that's good enough. Number four, we don't have to worry about our girls. We only have to worry about our boys. And number five, myth number five is if I talk to my child about pornography or sex, they would just become curious and go searching for yeah, pornography. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. And that's not the case. Every professional I talk to, the counselors I speak with, when we provide our children meaningful information that helps support their sexual development and understanding, they become equipped to help you as a parent protect themselves. So they, the child is actually engaged in, hey, I know what's happening here. I can see what's coming at me. I can make choices based on how I've been taught, how I've been taught and discipled. Yeah, one of the myths that I speak to whenever I'm in front of a group, particularly when we're speaking about the youth, is the fact that sex is the main content of pornography. And I think that's a misnomer. Violence against women is the main content of pornography today. Try to imagine a young man or a young woman seeing porn for the first time and probably between 50 and 60% of the time, it's significant violence against women inside of that pornography. A woman, a young girl, may a teenager, she sees intimacy and violence together and thinks that's what girls like. That's 
what these women are saying feels good. A young man sees it and thinks that's what I should do. Just to think about that frightens me and should frighten all of us, that our children are growing up thinking that there is a significant relationship between intimacy and violence. We have much work to do. I'm very thankful for the two of you, Sam Black and Rick Cardos. Thanks so much for talking to us today about this really important topic. Thank you, Russell, for having us. What a blessing. And we will be right back on The Bulletin. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Right. I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Welcome back to the Bulletin. I remember being a second grader, I think, playing Little League Baseball and seeing two of the referees get into a physical fight with each other. One had said something to another, and next thing you know, they're in a dugout with aluminum bats going at each other, parents trying to pull them off of each other. And I remember thinking, even as a second grader, huh, this isn't very professional or mature, it doesn't seem to me. I could see us getting into fights, but when the referees and the coaches start doing it, That's a different thing. I think this week we have every reason to, as a country, look to the nation's capital and say, what is going on? We have fights being threatened between witnesses and senators in Senate hearings. We have a member of Congress claiming that another member of Congress elbowed him in the kidneys. While walking through the hallway, we have a member of Congress under ethics investigation for making up his entire life, as well as being involved in all kinds of financially wrong things. And we have the Supreme Court saying we're going to try to be more ethical and actually have a code of ethics for our Supreme Court justices. So it's a mess. 
It's a mess. It's been a mess for a while, but it seems to be quite a mess this week. And so I wanted to talk today with Christianity Today's brand new national political correspondent, Harvest Prude, who is reporting from Washington, D.C., from Capitol Hill. She's a former reporter for The Dispatch until very recently. Before that, she was at World, serving as political reporter for their Washington bureau. Harvest, welcome to your debut appearance here on The Bulletin. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Let's start with the Supreme Court. You've had all of this controversy going on with Clarence Thomas, Harlan Crow, other expenditures happening with trips and so forth. A lot of blowback coming to the Supreme Court for that happening. Now there's a code of ethics. Does this code of ethics, is is this actually going to change anything? What's the mechanism for enforcing it? So you've hit upon the key criticism from a lot of like watchdog groups or critics of the court. There is not a enforcement mechanism. Instead, the justices as a whole, they've all signed on to this code of ethics that was released Monday. And they are basically making the argument that the Supreme Court has always had a code of ethics, a common law code of ethics that is similar to what lower court justice judges follow, and that this is just them having more transparency, letting the public into the code of ethics and the principles that they already do follow. But to your point, obviously, it's been a year of more criticism about how justices have conducted themselves. There's been more questions around ethics. And so it is a little bit unclear at this point whether them releasing this codified document explaining how they tend to approach these issues will really resolve some of the reporting and that has led to public criticism. One of the things that Justice Thomas said when he was coming under uh, criticism is something along the lines of, I'm allowed to have friends. (laughs) And that does at one level make sense. You have someone who has friends who are very wealthy in this case. They want to take vacations together. How do you differentiate between that? We're, We're not asking our justices to become Franciscan monks. So how do we differentiate between that and where there actually is a clear conflict of interest or a mechanism to try to influence a justice when it comes to decisions? Yeah. So I do want to note that the questions around influencing justices around mingling with extremely wealthy donors or politicians does not just apply to Justice Thomas. There's been other reporting showing that a number of justices have been involved in going to events hosted by universities and other public institutions, where then those institutions would try and generate donations from donors who attended events. And that's been across the bench. And But to your point, there is some fuzzy ground here in terms of at what point does this become a question of recusal if those donors or those public figures are then later involved in a case that's come before the court. And I think the the main takeaway from some of the code of ethics and just the criticism has just been a failure to disclose. Thomas has come under criticism for not disclosing luxury gifts or vacations. Samuel Alito, Justice Alito has also come under criticism for not disclosing a similar trip with a billionaire who then later was involved with a case that the court heard 
And Alito defended himself on the grounds that he wasn't even aware of the donor's involvement in the case. And so I think there has just been more of a spotlight on the need to, in the annual financial disclosures that justices already make, which is similar to what lower courts do, to just maybe disclose more of these things and get ahead of them. There is an ethics process in the United States Congress, a bipartisan House Ethics Committee. And one of the things that committee is looking at and is expected to give a report on, maybe even by the time this episode airs, is on George Santos, for whom there are so many ethics charges that it's hard to even remember them all and to list them all. And also a kind of shamelessness, it Mm -hmm. seems, that Santos is able to simply shrug all of this off, even though the people who seem to be the most upset are New York Republican members of Congress, the same state that Santos is from. When this report comes out, going to be a push to expel Santos from the House, but it's not in isolation. You think of the sort of back and forth with, say, Kevin McCarthy, who was deposed as speaker, with Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, who led the charge to depose him. McCarthy said just this week, there's an ethics complaint against Gates, and he doesn't want people to know what that is, but it's going to be bad. Do you think that the ethics process in Congress, is this going to end up strengthening the credibility of the House, or is it just going to be one more kind of back and forth political operation? Yeah, one of the challenges with the ethics process in Congress is that at the end of the day, it is largely up to the lawmakers themselves to police their own institution. And so if there is a credible report of wrongdoing, like with Representative Santos, who's had just a plethora of shady doing, such as reporting hundreds of thousands of dollars and fictitious loans to his campaign and then repaying himself with real money and just just insane things. That's like the tip of the iceberg. And the problem is that Republicans have an extremely small margin of power in terms of seats and lawmakers are, especially in leadership, they're not incentivized to push out or rally their colleagues around pushing out colleagues who have been found to do wrongdoing because it jeopardizes their own hold on power, their own ability to get things done. And as unpleasant as that may be Mm -hmm. to say, unfortunately, it has been how it has worked in the past. Though we have seen some cases in the past where a lawmaker had just done something indefensible that their colleagues would pressure them to resign, or we saw something like Mm -hmm. that with Nancy Pelosi pressuring a, or basically calling for a Republic, a California Democratic freshman lawmaker to resign after there was some sexual scandal and the lawmaker did resign. And, but it's often a, almost a matter of conscience, like how, when shamelessness is the operating principle, that begins to break down, which is what we have seen. Yeah. And just this week, I am the furthest thing imaginable from a fan of Bernie Sanders 
when I started out as a congressional intern, we were right next door to Bernie Sanders, my boss, and his office. And I found it a really mean group of people. And I said to my member of Congress, my boss and now friend, Gene Taylor, why are they so rude? And he said, ah, they're socialists. They're from, they're from Vermont. It's cold. They just have every reason to be, to be miserable. And I've thought about that for quite a while. But this week... I guess we were all Bernie bros for a second because uh, Bernie Sanders was the one who actually showed the maturity in chairing a committee to say to Mark Wayne Mullen, senator from Oklahoma, who literally challenged Teamsters official to a physical fight. Here's the time. Here's the place. Let's go at it. And standing up, it looked like there was actually going to be a physical confrontation. At the same time that you, you have this Burchett McCarthy, what's reported as a an elbow punch followed by a chase, <laughs> followed by what's going on? Are, are things just breaking down there? There were so many good memes about what was happening this week. Someone was like, have we tried unplugging Congress and plugging it back in again? <laughs> yeah. But I was talking to a Hill aide about what was going on and what her boss was trying to get done amidst the chaos that has been trying to fund the government. And she said, honestly, everyone's just, we've been in session for five weeks in a row and everyone's just going crazy at this point. And that's not me defending, I don't think that was her defending goonish behavior, but I think that is honestly part of the fraying of tempers that you're seeing. Yeah, but I can imagine somebody listening to this who, who will say, I've been working for five weeks in a row and I'm not threatening to punch anybody. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what? <laughs> they would be right. I definitely do not think we should hold uh, elected officials to lower standards of behavior at all. That was just her insight into yeah. what was going on. But it was pretty disconcerting to see Senator Mullen, who is a former MMA fighter as well. Yeah. <laughs> offering to, to duel, essentially. And we've obviously had that at times in American history, but hopefully have moved in a more civil, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to make the case that we've really moved a far away from Aaron Burr <laughs> at this, this point. Yes. Harvest Prude, national political correspondent at Christianity Today. We are going to be expecting your wisdom guiding us through what we can only imagine it's going to be an acceleratingly crazy time in this Congress. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. And we will be right back on The Bulletin. This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader, Where You're From, and discover how their life experiences and expertise even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's whereyafrom.org. I'm Russell Berry, reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. 
Hi, I'm Charlie Peacock, and if you're enjoying this show, I think you'd love Music and Meaning, a podcast where we go in-depth into the world of music, sharing evocative stories of crafting popular songs the whole world sings. We explore how music transcends mere sound, becoming a mirror to our times, a testimony to our shared humanity, and a sign and symbol of our deepest joys and needs. Join us and listen to Music and Meaning on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome back to The Bulletin. It was a bad week and a bad year for the pro-life movement. Voted rather overwhelmingly to adopt a constitutional provision protecting right to abortion all the way through with no uh, restrictions, while at the same time, Virginia, with Governor Glenn Youngkin arguing that a 15-week ban on abortion would be the moderating position that most people could agree on, ended up not just not winning the state Senate, but also losing the General Assembly altogether, which means there won't be abortion legislation in Virginia. And with that, exit polling consistently uh, showing that people are opposed to the uh, restrictions on abortion, and it looks like the opposition to the pro-life movement has accelerated in public opinion quite a bit since the Dobbs decision reversed Roe versus Wade. So I wanted to talk today to somebody who knows more about this than anybody I know, and that is my friend Kelly Rosati, who is the president of KMR Consulting. She's a lawyer. She was a vice president of community outreach at Focus on the Family for many years and was the co-founder with me of something called Evangelicals for Life, where we would gather every year to around the March for Life to talk about a pro-life, whole life ethic. And we'll talk about what that means in a few minutes. First time I ever met Kelly Rosati. She picked me up at the airport, she and another friend of mine, in a car that had hay in it because she'd been transporting a horse in the car. And I just said, I love it. I am I am completely comfortable as a Mississippian with this Colorado Western <laughs> world here. So we have worked on a lot of things in the years since then. Kelly Rosati, thanks for being on the Bulletin for the first time. Uh, It's great to be here with you. When you look at a year or so ago when the Dobbs decision reversed Roe, I think there were a lot of people in the pro-life movement who were very exuberant and were able to say, okay, now we're going to be able to actually advance the cause. Here we are. It looks like one of the things that we're getting out of that is an even more robust pro-choice movement. Why do you think that is? I think in many ways we have tragically missed the mark. And I think we need to do a really big pivot in this post-Dobbs world if we are actually going to accomplish the objective, which brings a question to mind. What in fact is the objective? Is the objective in the pro-life movement, in our movement that we've been a part of for so long, is it to save lives? Is it to end abortion? I think for a lot of people, they would say, yeah, that's the goal. But unfortunately, what I think we've seen in some quarters after Dobbs is that 
for some people, the goal is to win and to say we won and to say we had a victory at the Supreme Court. And at the end of the day, when you see the kind of backlash we've seen from those who support abortion rights combined with the lack of support from evangelicals for women who are facing unexpected pregnancies, and you just have a recipe for a very losing situation in my view. And I think there were definitely folks who kept trying to raise the alarm to say, we are not ready. We are not ready for a post-Dobbs world. We might win and we might be able to do, which by the way, I think is very important. I do believe in legal protection and human rights for unborn children. But I think the way in which we've gone about that has actually put us back quite a while, quite a ways in this movement. I'll say one other thing that's probably very controversial. The pro-life movement's willingness and desire to link arms with one of the most unpro-life sounding presidents in the history of the United States of America, one of the cruelest and most dehumanizing president we've ever had in terms of his rhetoric. When the pro-life movement decided to link its future and its cause to that president, I believe that it set the movement back. I was really trying to think about this and not speak in hyperbole, but maybe a couple generations Mm. has been the damage in my estimation. I think you and I were together with some leaders of other pro-life organizations in 2016, maybe early in the spring, in which I was making the case, you can't have a pro-life movement and misogyny and sexual libertinism and nativism and cruelty. Those things don't work. And sooner or later, there's a kind of cognitive dissonance where one is going to have to go. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really concerned that what we're going to end up having are two pro-abortion parties ultimately, because you just can't hold all of those things together. When you look at the fact that we're not, as you put it, ready in churches, A lot of us spend a lot of time saying to churches, here's what we need to be able to do when it comes to women who are in crisis, because most of the women who are vulnerable to abortion are not necessarily people who accept the Planned Parenthood talking points that this is not a person, this is just a blob of tissue. A lot of them think, I know this is wrong, I know this is a human being, but I feel like I don't have any other choice. What can churches who actually do want to say, we actually do want to be committed to unborn children and their moms, not just in terms of the legal stuff, put that aside for a minute. What can they do about the, the women and babies in their communities? I think that is the most important question. And I'm afraid I think it's the one that's being missed because I think we have to go back just a little bit here and remind ourselves that the entirety of the pro-life movement is because of love, is because of the love of God for every human person. And so as people of love and life and followers of Jesus, we need all of the work that we do in this realm to be grounded in that love and not as a tactic. I always think back to people talk about, oh gosh, we better be more winsome because, because, 
people will like us more and then we'll win. And it's, yes, that's true. But how about if maybe we're winsome because we're having the love of Mm -hmm. Jesus flow through us to other people. And that might seem like a little thing, but I think it's a huge thing. And I think part of what we see with the backlash now in these votes that we've seen in red states is that people get that. They have come face to face with a lot of people who profess pro-life ideology and advocacy, who are tied to Trump, who are very angry, who don't seem to want to prioritize what should we do for moms and babies, who want to win. So I do think that's a really key thing. And then I think the other thing is we have to take both the love and do put it into action, not just talking, not just tweeting, not just doing what we do, not just voting, maybe going to a walk once in a while for a pregnancy resource center. It's going to take a lot more than that. I think that we need to faithfully express that whole life ethic in both the public and the private sphere. Here's what I mean by that. When we say whole life, I don't think people always understand what we mean. So when I say it, two things. One is holistic support for mom and baby. And I'm going to come back to that tangibly, what that could look like, what in my opinion, would be really necessary things we'd have. And then the other thing is in the private sphere, in our churches. So as it relates to our churches, I very much encourage getting involved with a ministry like Embrace Grace, for example, that is focused on the love of Jesus and being able to minister to women where they're at, with the struggles they have, to support both mom and baby, to make sure that our love in action represents the same concern for the life of mom as it does for the life of baby. We can do that well. We can do it today. We can do it all day long. It's a matter of resource and prioritization. And for people in churches and for church leadership, that's and I'm sympathetic to this, there's so much you could possibly do. If being pro-life is a significant part of who we want to be in our churches, I think baseline practical support has got to be there. It's got to be prioritized. It's got to be funded. And we've got to see love in action and not just in word and vote and tweet. What what would you say to somebody who's listening to this who says, okay, I want that. I'm in a congregation where I'm not in charge, but I'm here. I don't know what to do. How do I start? The thing I always encourage people in churches to do is don't take something to a pastor and ask him to do it. He's pretty busy. Work on it yourself. Gather with your friends. There's nothing more exciting than working for what God is doing in the kingdom with a group of friends locking arms and doing it together. It's this very serious work. To really be in the trenches of this is so much less tidy than I think a lot of us wish our lives could be. And have maybe been told they should be. I think the the way that you and I first many years ago <laughs> started working together was on the issue of orphan care and adoption and foster care and those related things. We're at a time now where we've had a good 15, 20 years of some of us who've been working in this area. How do you think the church has done when it comes to actually caring for families who are adopting or fostering or involved in some other way with orphan care? I'm going to give the grade uh, a D. Mm. I think there are pockets of higher grades 
But I have to tell you that what I have witnessed in the last 20 years in regard to this is one of the saddest things I feel like I've seen in the church because I and we both together could name countless families that have been destroyed by trying to walk out their faith in a way that is pleasing to the Jesus who they follow. And they wanted to give a home to a child without one, but because they weren't properly prepared for the effects of trauma in utero and early mm-hmm. on, the challenges and the difficulties are beyond even the comprehension of a lot of people mm-hmm. in our churches. And I think that when that happens, people get afraid and they don't know what to do. And so again, I have sympathy and empathy for pastors because yeah. I get it that this is hard. But if you're going to go into orphan care, if you're going to encourage your people to welcome home kids who need families, you cannot walk away from the families. I will never forget the woman I sat with. She and her husband were missionaries for more than a decade. And this woman sat in a booth in a restaurant with me and she wept. Mm. And her marriage was nearly destroyed. She was very shaky and even the bottom line tenets of faith hanging on, forget the missionary business. She was so traumatized herself by what she had been through and trying to support her kids and not getting the support from her church family that encouraged her to take that child in. It was just such a sad thing. And we see it over and over. Now, thankfully, there are absolutely exceptions Super encouraging things happening in pockets, but systemically, not happening systemically. And if you look at all the movement in the orphan care ministry, if you will, particularly on the foster care side, if you look at those global numbers, there hasn't been that much change. So yes, people have stepped forward. Some people have, but most haven't. And therefore, the overall numbers haven't really changed. At the same time, the families that have stepped into this have faced such isolation and discouragement. I don't mean to be negative, but I've just seen a lot of desolation, and it's broken my heart. If you look at those votes that we were talking about earlier, not just the ones over the past couple of weeks, but before that in Kentucky and Kansas and now in Ohio and other places with this almost universally pro-abortion rights moving sorts of popular support in these places. One of the things that I think ought to be most alarming to those of us who are pro-life is not just the vote, but if you look at the demographic numbers and you see where under 30s are and how they're voting on this, and it is shockingly pro-choice and hostile to a pro-life ethic. How do you think that we ought to start talking to Gen Z and beyond that, Generation Alpha? How do we talk to them about this? I have so much that I think is really good news in Mm. this regard. And it's, first of all, I think the number one thing that should happen that I don't have a lot of faith will happen, I'll just be honest, is repentance by their parents and the old people like us who have had this truncated view of life, who have said pro-life is only about unborn children. At the same time, we have nothing to say about maternal mortality or about people who die from preventable death because they don't have access to health care. That's a very basic reality that everybody knows, including those Gen Zers. And they sit there and they go, huh, 
how come my parents never cared that people don't have health care as long as we have it, as long as our premiums are okay? Gosh, maternal mortality, that's when moms die because they chose life and they're giving birth. And now we have babies who are orphaned. Why aren't we on the front lines of that? I just think they can see the hypocrisy from 10 miles away. So until we repent for it and apologize to them and turn and go in this different direction and say, you know what? We do have to be pro-life for the whole life, not only for babe, pre-born baby, for mom and for all people throughout their lives. And so I think that if we could have some ownership, some repentance, some changing of directions, some repairing, and then going in this different way, I actually think a lot of those folks who do care about justice types of issues could be brought into the fold. I've always mm -hmm. believed this, but not until they first see where the olders will go first <laughs> and admit that we missed it and we didn't get it quite right. And as a result, look at what we're seeing. I think that's the beginning to it all. And I think that if they saw those same people that they've heard preaching at them their whole lives about voting Republican because they're so pro-life, actually being leaders on things and holding fiscal conservatives responsible to allocate funds for desperate moms and babies instead of road builders, I think they would start to pay attention and maybe reconsider. I truly believe that. You think about all of the rooms that you and I were in for all of those years talking about building a pro-life movement with people who are involved at every level, legislatively and mobilization and, and other places. We always had some differences among us on some things. But one of the things that we always had in common, and I, and I think everybody, I can't think of a single exception of somebody who was really involved in the movement. We weren't trying to criminalize women. We wanted uh, right. legal justice for unborn children, but we weren't asking for women to be arrested, imprisoned, or uh, executed. We saw both mom and baby as being victims of an abortion industry that has been creating a culture of abortion for a long time. Since then, I don't know if this is the way you feel about it, but I just get just blood pressure as high as it can be when I see often people who have done nothing in the pro-life movement, nothing in uh, orphan care, nothing in crisis pregnancy, nothing in persuasion or in legislation, who suddenly now post-Dobbs want to have an, what they call often an abolition of abortion, which says what we want to do is to arrest mothers as murderers, in some cases, have them executed. What should our response be to this? This is an area where I'm thankful that the movement has been clear. That is not the position of pro-life Christians throughout yeah. history. That is shocking. It's abominable. 
It needs to be absolutely refuted and beat back. And I think that is going to be also part. I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's hard to even believe we're having to talk about it. But the repudiation of that ought to be very, very easy for pro-life people. Believe me, the alphas and the zers are going to want to know if us old folks think we ought to be throwing moms in jail. It's just, it's so absurd on its face. I'd like to see what is they're doing in their lives and their churches in their families, in their communities. If this is, if you're ready to put women in jail, what are you willing to do with your own pocketbook and your own family and your own church? Kelly Rosati, longtime pro-life leader, pro-orphan care, pro-adoption, pro-foster care leader as well. I'm always so glad to, to get to work with you and to talk with you. Thanks for being here. You bet. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening today to The Bulletin. We will be back next week with Mike Kosperpak and Nicole Martin back. They'll have lots of things they'll want to talk about. I will too. See you then. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening.